Isn't that just an amazing part of God's Word in Scripture? Those chapters have so much richness and joy and truth, and I get the joy and privilege tonight of trying to help us feel the full weight of what God has just said to us there through the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Let me pray that God would actually help us this evening and that God would impress uh, upon our hearts a recognition of the immeasurable riches of His grace for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, as we gather here tonight, uh, would you empower us out of your glorious riches with your Spirit? Would your Spirit come into our inner selves and give us strength to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is your love, that love that actually surpasses our understanding? However it is that we come here this evening, whether we're disappointed by something from the past week, whether we're distressed about circumstances of life, whether we're grumpy or proud or happy or even if we're just doing fine, uh, would you help us each to leave this place full of joy, knowing with certainty your great love and mercy towards us. For the praise of your glory we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but over these past couple of weeks, I've definitely noticed that we've changed seasons here in Auckland. And it hasn't just been the rain that started to come, uh, but I've noticed it in the mornings. When I wake up, all of a sudden, it's gotten cold. Uh, My toe comes out from under the duvet. I said duna this morning, and people had a go at me, like, what's a duna? We call it a duna where I grew up. A duvet, is that the right word, or a quilt? Your toe goes out, and you just get this shiver, and you're like, no, I do not want to get out of bed yet. Uh, Many of you guys are students, so it's good because you don't actually have to. You can just go back to sleep and be like, oh, well, missed that first class. I better wake up at some point. Uh, I don't get that luxury. Um, But you notice that it's cold and it's hard to get out of bed. It raises a question for me, and this is the question that we'll deal with through God's Word tonight. What does make it worth getting out of bed at all? What is it that actually makes life worth living? Now, I'm aware that there's probably some people here tonight for whom that's a very real question. Uh, More than just the cold, as you wake up, you struggle to see the point of life. I'm aware that some of you may be going through a patch of life like that. Uh, My prayer for you throughout this week has been that tonight, as you hear what God has to say to you in Ephesians, uh, His Son would rise in your soul and that He would give you a deep-seated joy and a, a recognition that your life does have a meaning that your life does have a purpose and that that would actually be a help as you go out this week. For others of us, that's not a question that we ponder on a daily basis. We just jump out of bed with energy, ready to go into the day. We're excited about different things that are coming up. We never really stop to ask the question, why am I doing all this? What is the purpose? Why, what makes life worth living? But I think underlying all that energy, if you're the kind of person that just loves getting into it, underlying that, there are some assumptions about what makes life worth living. There are things that If they were to be taken away from your life, then you would find it quite hard. So what are those things? Is it a life full of stuff? Family, friends, money, work, health, music. Is it a life full of those things that we have that gives us meaning? Or has lifehack.org got it right? Useful website. Uh, I don't actually know. All the titles looked good. They looked useful. Uh, Lifehack.org had an article of what makes life worth living. They suggested it wasn't nouns, but verbs. It's things that we do. And so their list was creating, relating, helping, realising, which doesn't mean just coming to know stuff. I think realising means putting things into reality, making them a reality. 
uh, playing or growing? Are these actions the things that make life worth living? In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus makes a pretty extraordinary claim. It should be up there on the screen for you to see. Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus comes that we might have life, life in abundance. That sounds pretty good, eh? Life to the full. According to the God who created us, the God who created you, only with Jesus do we have life that is worth living. In fact, it's only with Jesus that we have life at all. Now, if you've got a Bible there, keep it open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is a letter written by a guy called Paul. Now, Paul was a real man. That's how he wrote a letter. He lived uh, some 2,000 years ago. And Paul was a good Jewish man. So as Paul grew up, uh, he was such a good Jewish man that when Jesus came along and these early Christians started to follow him, as a Jew, he thought, well, these guys are dodgy blasphemers. They're claiming that Jesus is God. So as a good Jewish man, he went around and was persecuting these early Christians, locking them up in prison, even killing some of them. Until one day, he met Jesus. The Jesus that he knew was dead and buried, but now appeared to him alive and risen. And that meeting with Jesus changed Paul's life entirely. He went from persecuting Christians and started proclaiming Jesus, travelling the world to tell people that Jesus is risen and calling them to believe that Jesus is both God and Messiah. So that's Paul who wrote this letter. And in Ephesians, he's writing to a group of Christians who he had actually shared that message with, a group of people in a place called Ephesus. When Paul rocked up to Ephesus, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 19, he found a group of people that weren't worshipping the Jewish God. They were worshipping a Greek god called Artemis. They had their little silver statues of Artemis. There was a great temple for Artemis there. They were bowing down to Artemis. Uh, Alongside that, they were also very magical people. They had lots of books of magic. They liked practicing magic in all of those kinds of forms. Uh, Paul turned up there, told them about Jesus, who he was, what he'd done, and many of them believed, and their lives were changed as well. Acts 19 tells us that they brought out all their magical books, uh, some 50,000 drachmas worth. I don't know what a drachma is worth. Does anyone know? Let's call it a dollar. So 50 grand's worth of books out in the street set on fire because they realized this stuff is useless. Uh, We've been good to see that. I've never been to a book burning. I do actually like books, but that's some fire, like $50,000 worth of books up in flames. The Ephesians recognized that they had been living life the wrong way and turned to start worshiping Jesus. Now, over the next three weeks, we'll be working through this letter that Paul wrote to these Ephesian Christians. We won't see all its detail, but we'll get a sketch of some of the key themes. And my hope is that you'll go home and read through the whole of the book of Ephesians and fill in the detail and see how it fits with the structure that we unfold here on a Sunday night. We just had about a third of Ephesians read for us and that took, what, five minutes? So it only takes you 15, maybe 20 minutes to read the whole letter of Ephesians. And that's a well worthwhile use of your time. Uh, Maybe even once, twice a week over the next three weeks, just take that time to read the letter in its entirety and give someone a call from church and say, hey, just really encouraged by this bit, or I had this question about this part of Ephesians, what do you think? Let's be encouraging one another in the Word throughout the week, as well as when we gather on a Sunday. Our passage today, we're focusing particularly on Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10, and it picks up on the profound transformation that we just heard about in the lives of the Ephesians. It shows us the full depth of that change that they went through, not just from a human perspective, but actually from God's perspective. 
So have a look at, with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. What we see first of all here is that life without Jesus is not really life. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And you were dead. That's strong language. They weren't just a little bit sick. They didn't have a nagging cough and a sniffle. A good self-help book wasn't going to cut it for the Ephesian people. They didn't just need a new diet or a good role model to follow. That wouldn't deal with their problem. They're in the morgue. They're dead. And Paul gives us the cause of death for these people there in verse 1 still. It was their trespasses and sins that killed them. Those two words together, trespass and sin, really amount to the one thing. It means walking away from God. Trespass means walking somewhere that you shouldn't, crossing over a line that you're not meant to cross. So much earlier, about 700 years before Paul, the prophet Isaiah described humanity in this way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That's a problem. Because God, who created us, had set out a way for humanity to follow, a way for us to walk in. But rather than sticking to God's path, we each chose our own path to follow. The Ephesians had wandered away from God. And in doing so, they'd cut themselves off from the one who created them and the one who sustains their life. That's why trespass results in death. God is our source of life. We're dependent on Him who made us and who sustains us with every breath and every heartbeat. And so to cut yourself off from God, well, it's to be like a flower that decides I'm going to cut myself off from the root that gives me life. I know that many of us like to receive flowers, probably particularly the females amongst us. If there's a guy who likes to receive flowers, that's cool too. Let me know, I can get you some when you're feeling down. Uh, flowers are nice and they look pretty in a vase they still look very nice sometimes they even smell good Um, but when they're in the vase they're dead they look good they still have some semblance of life in them but they're cut off from the root they're not getting nutrients anymore they're dead that's what it's like for the Ephesians they still looked alive by any human standard there's no doctor looking at them and saying you're dead but we need God's perspective His eyesight is better than ours. And in God's perspective, these Ephesians are like that flower cut off from the root. They're like chickens who have had their heads cut off. I'm aware I'm in a city, so I better check. Have you guys seen a chicken with its head cut off? Stick up your hand if you have, country boy. Yeah, good, good. I only found out not too long ago that many people in schools in cities don't get taught how to cut off a chicken's head and pluck a chicken. I got taught that at high school. It was wonderful. Um, Chickens, when you cut their heads off, there's still lots of movement. Uh, They can run around on the ground for a time, but they are dead. And that's what Paul's saying is the reality for these Ephesians. There's lots of life in them. They look alive, but really they're dead. Now, in wandering away from God like these Ephesians had done, they'd followed a familiar path. Look at verse 2. They were walking according to the ways of this world according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. 
the world is united in its rejection of God. And every person born into this world follows that path. Think about the various influences that have shaped your life so far, shaped you to be who you are today. I mean, we like to think that we chart our own course, but when you stop to think about it for a second, there are all sorts of things that have set our course for us. Our families, the country we grew up in, our friends, our school, the the advertising that shapes our wants and our needs. And alongside these physical influences sits a spiritual, personal influence whose path we follow as well. The ruler over the lower heavens there in verse 2. That ruler that we often call the devil. Now in Auckland, lots of people like to pretend that there's no more to this world than what we can perceive with our senses. What we can see and hear and taste and touch and smell. But again, we need God's perception because his senses and his perception are, are far more developed than ours. And God tells us that there is this very real personal presence called the devil or Satan who leads the rebellion against God. And so, piecing together verse 1 and 2, from God's perspective, the Ephesians were dead and their dead bodies were like puppets on strings being moved around according to the wishes of the devil and the world. That's not a pretty picture. In case you're distancing yourself from this picture, saying, look, that's bad for the Ephesians, and perhaps there are some people in the world today who are like that, have a look at verse 3. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. This horrific plight was not just reserved for the pagan Ephesians with their witchcraft. Paul includes himself, along with all of us, amongst those who were dead. You here this evening, along with me, apart from Jesus, are dead. We wander around under the command of the world, the devil, and now here in verse 3, the flesh. Like animals, we're driven by our desires and our instincts that set our path for us and lead us further and further away from God, further and further into death. And the result of this at the end of verse 3 is that we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. We are naturally left to ourselves under the wrath of God. God's wrath, His good and just anger at the brokenness of the world that He created. Now, I know this is all a bit heavy. And don't worry, there is good news coming. There's great news coming. But to get how great that news is, we need first to hear how terrible our situation was without Jesus. You know, perhaps you came to church tonight just wanting some good life lesson. Uh, a set of 10 principles to give you contentment in singleness, a set of principles that would help you to be a better student and get better marks, Uh, a list of rules to follow that would help you excel in life. I know some people go to church for those kinds of things. Perhaps you came thinking that all you needed was your sins of this past week to be wiped away so that you could have a clean slate for the new week to come, a second chance, and maybe you'll do better this week. No, without Jesus, we're dead. Life lessons and principles, that's not what we need. Not even just our sins of the past week being wiped away. A second chance isn't going to help us. We're 
dead. Life without Jesus is not really life. Now, there's probably still people here thinking, no, that's a load of rubbish. That really doesn't describe me at all. If that's you, I've got a challenge for you for this coming week. I want you to try to go the whole week without being selfish once. You up for it? Uh, You'll have to come back next week to tell me how you go. Uh, If you can get through this next week without being selfish once, uh, then I'll believe that you know yourself better than God knows you. But if you notice yourself once throughout this week, as hard as you try, still being selfish, well, then you'll know that God's assessment of you is actually better than your own. You do things that you don't want to do. And there are things that you do want to do that you just can't do. Me too. We like that. God knows that we are dead in our sin, unable to say no to it and unable to return to Him. In fact, I think the point of this imagery of being dead, what can dead people do? Nothing. And so in Ephesians 2 verse 4, our eyes are taken off ourselves and turned towards God. But God, but God who is rich in mercy. Notice the initial focus there on God's mercy. If God is to do anything for us, it has to be preceded by his mercy. For our dreadful situation has arisen from our rejection of God. If God was to treat us according to justice, then we would stay dead under his anger. That's what we deserve. But God doesn't give us what we deserve. He is rich in mercy. It's not just a meager bit of mercy, but a whole wealth of compassion wells up in God's heart as he looks upon his beloved humanity lying lifeless in sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, how great is God's love for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in our trespasses. There's the key action of this whole part of Ephesians. God made us alive with Christ. And notice how Paul slips in another reminder there of what our situation was apart from Jesus, just so that we get the point. Even though we were dead in our trespasses. But the point is not merely our sin. The point is what God has done despite our sin. God gives us true life with Jesus. Last year, there was a TV show that came out in Australia. There's a picture up on the screen for you to see uh, an image from it. It was called Glitch. I don't know if it made it across here to New Zealand. It probably shouldn't have. It was a really rubbish TV series, so I don't reckon you should watch it. But the first episode was brilliant, and the very first scene was brilliant. Uh, What happened in the very first scene, um, I tried to find a video of it, but I could only find a behind-the-scenes thing of the first scene. Uh, Your looking through the eyes of a teenage boy who has ridden his bike along to a cemetery. It's night time. And you're watching through his eyes as he looks in this cemetery. He's hearing some noises. All of a sudden, uh, the soil of some graves starts moving and people start climbing out from their graves. Uh, The way it's portrayed is really gripping. You see these people, they're naked, they're caked in mud. They come up from their graves looking scared. They're unsure of where they are. They don't know what's going on. They're crying out for help. You can see all the ones in the blankets. That's them just after they've come up from their graves. I want you to picture yourself going through that process. 
the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament uh, paints the picture in an even bigger process. Ezekiel pictures a valley full of dry, lifeless bones. Bones, just all, everything else is gone, bones is all that's left. And all of a sudden they start to move and come together to form skeletons. And then flesh and muscle comes onto those skeletons and then skin and then the breath of life comes in and they're living people again. Death to life. Don't downplay in your mind the vast extent of what God has done for you. He hasn't just added on a little bit extra that you couldn't do yourself. He hasn't just given you a role model to follow. God has brought you from death to life. I I almost wish we could add an extra line into Amazing Grace, except that that's not really how songs work and it wouldn't work. But Amazing Grace, it's a wonderful reminder, hymn of what God has done for us. I once was lost, now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was dead, now I'm alive. That is the reality of what God has done for us. And like corpses, we contributed absolutely nothing to that happening. See how verse 5 finishes? Paul hasn't even finished his sentence here, but he's so blown away by the truth that he's just told us about that he bursts into praise. He says, you are saved by grace. By grace. Grace is God's free, undeserved, lavish kindness. That's what grace means, giving someone something that they don't deserve, something they haven't earned, a gift that comes with no expectation of being paid back for it. Paul has more to say about this particular life that God has given us in Christ by His grace. Look at verse 6. Together with Christ Jesus, He also raised us up and seated us in the heavens. In describing the life that God has given us, Paul draws on the same language that he used back in chapter 1 to describe what happened to Jesus himself after his earthly death. After Jesus was executed, he didn't stay dead, but have a look in chapter 1, verse 20. We read that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavens far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So where is Jesus now? I can't give you a physical location for it, but Jesus is right now reigning as king over every other power. And if at this point we remember two things about the Ephesians. One, the Ephesians were a magical bunch. They knew from experience that there are lots of spiritual powers out there, many of whom are scary. For them to hear this, that Jesus is more powerful than any other power, is a great comfort. And secondly, if we remember how Paul described our former way of life, that we were walking according to the ruler over the lower heavens, the devil, well, this truth is that Jesus is above that power too. That's where Jesus is now, living an eternal life that nothing can threaten, with no opposition that can bother him. In verse 22 of chapter 1, God put everything under his feet. Nothing now threatens Jesus. Back in chapter 2, verse 6, see now what Paul is saying about us. We who were dead, God has now raised up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavens. 
where we were once dead and subjugated under various powers that constrained our behavior, keeping us from living the way we were meant to live, now we are alive and all powers are under us. This is huge. You might be sitting here tonight physically in Auckland University, but at the same time, in a very real sense, if you are someone who trusts in Jesus, you are sitting in heaven with Jesus right now. That means that you need fear, no spiritual power. Be wary of them, yes. Know that they're there. When we get to chapter 6 of Ephesians, we'll see that Paul is very much aware of the, the spiritual battle that goes on. But you, if you trust in Jesus, have no need to fear any spiritual power. And you need not fear physical death either. For you now have a life that death cannot touch. God has made all this possible for us by uniting us with Jesus. That's the force of that first phrase there in verse 6, that all of this has happened to us together with Christ Jesus. We are united with Jesus as He dies, as He is raised to new life, as He is exalted to that right hand of God. Uh, People often try to explain this idea of union with Christ, being in Christ, by describing Jesus as like an envelope. And we like the letter. Put the letter in the envelope, where the envelope goes, we go. Or Jesus like the plane. If you want to go where the plane goes, you get into the plane. Uh, That's the way many people like to find it helpful to explain union with Christ, being in Christ, and they are helpful images. But if I can very briefly try to push us a bit deeper into this and bring out some of the richness of our union with Christ, um, have a look back at chapter 1, verse 13. See if you can follow on this. It's, It's beautiful, it's amazing, it's huge. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So notice there what we are given, the Holy Spirit. That is, as chapter 1 goes on to say, the Spirit by which God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We come to be in Christ Jesus when we are given to share of the same Spirit as Jesus has. We don't really talk much about spirits these days, but the language is closely identical tied to the idea of breath. My breath is tied to my spirit. And so a body is dead in the Bible until it has breath in it, until it has the spirit in it. We are dead until we have a spirit in us. And to give us this new life that we're hearing about in Ephesians, God gives us Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit. So we now breathe with Jesus' breath. We live with Jesus' life as His Spirit energizes us. Now, key to this happening, key to this making sense, is the idea that the one Spirit of God is able to live in all of us. Whereas we as humanity, we each have our own individual spirit. Well, God's Spirit, the one Spirit, can live in all of us at the same time. And it is that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead That same Spirit that even now lives in Jesus, that's the Spirit that at the same time lives also in us. Follow the logic there? That the Spirit unites us with Jesus as we actually share, in a very real sense, His life. We share His Spirit so that as He is raised from death, as He is seated in authority, 
we are there with Him. What have the Ephesians done to receive this Spirit? Still there in verse 13. When they heard the message of truth, the gospel of their salvation, they believed in Jesus. They trusted Him. That's what our response needs to be if we are to pass from death to life with Jesus. We need to hear a message and believe it. Hear the message that Jesus has risen from the dead to save us and believe it. It's that simple. It was simple for us. It wasn't simple for Jesus who had to die and endure God's wrath to make it happen. But for you, it's as simple as letting God save you rather than resisting Him from saving you. It's as simple as trusting God and saying, yep, you be my saviour, rather than trying some other way of saving yourself. If you let God save you, your life will change. So you expect to see a difference between a dead person and a living person, don't you? That's going to look very different in the way they live. One doesn't live, one does. Uh, We saw that transformation for Paul, didn't we? His life changed, the Ephesians, their life changed, and so it is with us. We've been taken from captivity to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and now we're in authority over them. So we're no longer driven by the passions of our bodies. We have the ability to say no to them. We can now say no to destructive things like lust and greed and dishonesty. We can stop living painful lives of pride and sloth and envy. We're now able to live the good life that God created us to live. And that's the life that's worth living. The life that goes with the grain of the universe rather than cutting against it. All of this by God's kindness. Have a look at verse 7. God gives us true life in Jesus so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Hear what that's saying? God wants to show off on you how kind He can be. If someone walked up to me in the street, actually no, if someone walked up to me in the street and did this, that would be too weird and I would say no. If one of you, who I know a little bit, walked up to me and said, Lachlan, I just want to use you to show off how kind I can be. I'm just going to lavish all of my kindness on you. Anything that I can think of that would be kind, I'm going to do it to you. I'd say, heck yes, bring that on. Uh, If anyone wants to do that, like, feel free, happy to have that conversation afterwards, tell you how I feel kindness. This is what God is saying. He wants to show off and display the immeasurable riches of His kindness on you. Verse 8 to 10, back this truth up by showing how God's saving work does display His kindness. For you are saved by grace. Remember what grace was, God's free, undeserved kindness. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. We did nothing to go from death to life. It was all God, all His kindness and love poured out on us if we receive it by faith. God's kindness and love was also filled out in chapter 1 as we had that read for us. Predestination, adoption, being brought into God's plan and purposes in the world, being, having that made known to us, receiving His Spirit. whole long list in chapter 1 of God's kindness to us. If you ever find yourself feeling proud about the fact that you're a Christian, 
or feeling proud about some transformation or growth that has happened in your life. Well, stop. Don't boast in yourself, but return the thanks to God because you've been given everything that you have. And that's what God wants to keep pointing to in years to come as for all eternity continues to lavish you with things that you don't deserve, things that you haven't earned, things that He doesn't expect you to pay back. Let's come back to that question that we started with. What makes life worth living? We've seen that life without Jesus is not really life. We've seen that God gives us true life in Jesus. And now have a look at verse 10. For we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Even our good works are given to us by God and God has given us this new life so that our new life might display His grace as we extend grace to others, as we treat others the way God has treated us, doing the good works that God has prepared for us to do. See, our good works in no way lead to our salvation. They're not a ladder that we climb to get to God. They don't earn us brownie points with us and get us into heaven. But if we are saved, that will and must lead to us doing good works. Otherwise, what have we been saved from? It's the penalty for our sin. Now, God wants us to save. God wants to save us from the penalty for sin, but also from its power. And this gives us a life that is worth living. It's worth getting out of bed tomorrow, because God has prepared good works for you to do. That's what verse ten tells us. God has prepared for you to show compassion to someone, to be a kind listening ear to someone, to love your husband or your wife, or to love your brothers and sisters in Christ with all purity, to speak encouraging words to someone. Now come back next week as we look at chapter 4 and 5 and we'll fill out some more detail of what these good works look like. But tomorrow, when you wake up, Get out of bed knowing that God has kept you alive because He has things for you to do that day. It's no accident if you wake up. God is the one who preserves you through the night. God is the one that says in the morning, wake up, have more breath, have more heartbeats. And it's never an accident from Him, but He wakes you up because He's got good things for you to do. To love Him and to love other people. And sometimes you'll wake up with lots of energy and say, Okay, God, what have you got for me today? Let's do this. Other times, life will be in a different stage and you'll wake up and go, Okay, God, what have you got for me today? Let's do this. But that's the mentality to bring to each day, waking up, knowing and looking for what God has in store for you, looking for those opportunities that God has given for you to do good to others. Now, taking on board all that we've seen tonight from Ephesians, there are two kinds of people here this evening. Some of you are still dead. You are far off from God, living by the desires of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I know that could sound offensive to you, but hear it in light of the good news, the free gift that God has to offer you. Yes, you are dead, but God is offering you life. If you're here tonight and you've never laid down your pride to trust in Jesus, can I invite you tonight to the new life that God is offering you with Jesus? Take it, receive it. It's God's gift for you. Freedom from the world, the flesh and the devil. If that is you and you want to receive that gift tonight, 
please do chat to myself or Rowan on your way out this evening over supper as we go to dinner. We would love to hear from you and pray with you. For most of us here this evening, we are those who are alive, truly alive. For us, I hope that we've been moved to a profound thankfulness for all that God has given to us, the vast extent of God's saving work in our life. Don't ever try to lay claim to any of it. Let's not go boasting in ourselves, but let's boast in Jesus, the risen and reigning one. And I'll close with a challenge for us. There are a lot of big problems in the world around us. Lots of big problems that are visible to varying extents. World hunger, the refugee crisis that's going on at the moment, ongoing slavery, including the horrendous sexual slavery that plagues our world. There are big problems. Just this week, I was reading an article about uh, bloodshed and violence in Burundi as war breaks out again there. Nigeria, just reading again that these 200 schoolgirls who were kidnapped two years ago, they're still in slavery to Boko Haram and they're now demanding a $75 million ransom. These are big, serious problems. And we as Christians ought to be conduits of God's blessing, not cul-de-sacs. We've received much here in New Zealand, wealth, education. We don't store that up with ourselves. We let that flow through us to impact the world around, yes. But if we're to take God seriously in his word, There's an even bigger problem than all these social ones that we can see. One that we can't see with our senses. If God's word is true, the majority of the world is currently dead. That includes those who follow other faiths, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Jew. To reject Jesus is to be dead. That includes all the agnostics and atheists. So the challenge for us is, will you take the gospel of salvation to the world so that people might hear the message of truth and believe it, be united to Jesus just as you have and have life? Start with the people that live around you, the people that are at university, in your workplace, your neighbours, your family. We have words of eternal life. How can we keep those in? And after we start with the neighbours around us, the people we're in, take it to the rest of the city, make sacrifices, go out of your comfort zone. Why would you not give up some earthly comfort for a time when you know that you've got eternal comfort coming and when you can bring eternal comfort to others? You might even take this to some part of the world that is hugely uncomfortable because you see, yes, the social issues there, but deeper than that, you see that these people are dead apart from the gospel of Jesus, that they might be saved. So there's the challenge for us in our lives, starting with the people around us. Recognise where they stand if they haven't trusted in Jesus yet. And let them know what God has to offer. What a message we have. We've come from death to life. Let me pray.